Welcome to the Emotional Warrior Podcast. This program is dedicated to the exploration of men's emotional health and relationship concerns. I'm here to provide you with the insight you'll need to get started on a path towards emotional growth and positive change. I welcome you to join me on this journey. Okay, welcome everyone to Emotional Warrior Podcast. I have with us today a dear friend and former client, um, and he is somebody that is going to have a conversation with me today about the benefits of therapy the and, and how to reconnect with yourself emotionally after going through a lot in life. He's definitely done the whole the rounds, whether it's in, um, with himself personally, as far as being in the military, struggling with addiction, relationships, you name it, depression. And I think that he's incredibly insightful. And so I wanted to welcome him on as far as being part of this process and um, helping people understand more about, I think, something that is usually tied to, you know, a confidentiality or behind closed doors. He's no longer my client. So we can, we're, we're really free to open and, and to talk about these things. But but also, it's it doesn't stop there. He continues to consider where he is in his life and think about things um, in a very introspective way. And he had a realization recently and then reached out and I invited him on to explore it with us because, again, I, I really want to bring these processes out of that box called the therapy room and out into the open because I think it's something we can all start to do for ourselves if we start, if we hear it, if we have the structure for even an introspective process within ourselves, which Frank will share with us and, and, um, and with others and how it really not therapy works because that's not what we're going to do today, but how to even have a connected conversation with another. So Frank, welcome. I, I want to also kind of get your intro just to come on into the field with me on this one and see where, what, what happened up in the tree that day. Tell me, just like, give us a, like a little bit of a scenario. Yeah, that was a great intro. It's great to be here with you. Everybody listening. Hi, my name is Frank. As Bianca said, I was a client of hers. I was in the military for 10 years, had some issues with codependency in relationships and a lot of troubled relationships going back to my childhood. I think my relationship with my parents affected that. And then really, I guess the best way to sum it up is once I reached adolescence, I was on this vector to try to use everything and anything I possibly could, other people, drugs, excitement, thrill-seeking, to cover up my emotions, to distract myself from my emotions. And I was in the military for 10 years, worked with Bianca after that for a while. We, were, we worked together for two years almost, probably. Mm-hmm. And yeah, as she alluded to, we were speaking recently and I mentioned a experience that I had two weekends ago. I was bow hunting and I was up in a tree. You go up by yourself in a tree stand and it's a long process. You have to be very patient if you're out there trying to get a deer. I got up at 2.30 in the morning, went out into the woods, probably got up in the tree around five and hadn't put a lot more thought into what I was going to do up there for 12 hours. And the first couple hours were relatively normal. I had my phone. 
I had a nice distraction. I was texting with some uh, girls I had met on Tinder and dating apps. And that was a nice distraction. Around hour four, my phone died. And I remember the first thing I thought was, man, I wish I had brought a book up here with me because this is getting really boring really quickly. And you're real, I was really remote. There's no one else around. You're essentially just waiting for a, a deer to walk within 50 yards of you, which didn't wind up happening that day. So it was all for naught. But other than this, you know, realization I had. So hour four, my, my phone dies. And mm -hmm. I managed to distract myself for another, I would say, hour doing doing uh, squats in my tree stand and doing the, yeah, the, uh, what are they called when you have your knees at a 90 degree angle against the wall, wall squats, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Wall sits, yeah, yeah. Yep. Against the tree. So that got me through the next hour. And then I started playing these really fun mental games with myself because you're up there alone and it's, I started playing these mental games with myself. One, uh, for example, I like to call it remember every mistake you've ever made in agonizing detail and go over it for hours, sit with your regret for, and that's sort of, it was really, sh it was shocking to me to be up there and to realize there was so much still that I hadn't, I left on process or that I maybe wasn't putting the work into. At that point, so. So I, I think that that's a that's a great leaving off process. It's you know it kind of reminds me of I've seen people do the experiment of going into the white room. They're like, yeah, I can make it twelve hours. You know, <laughs> we have videos on them <laughs> by hour four. Yeah, you definitely need to exercise. Um, and then, but the mental game that you played with yourself, I, I that that is that is interesting. You know, it wasn't something that was like, oh, let's see how many brown things I can find, you know, or green things or blue things. You, you really went on in. It, 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 that, was a, a, that was a really strong turning inward of like, look at every mistake I've ever made and, you know, go through it in detail. And that, that will, I mean, is there, is there something that, have you ever heard of that before? To be honest, I haven't. No. And, and honestly, it wasn't even really a game. It was more a game that my mind was playing with me. It was a, a very similar to meditation where when you first start meditating and you try to quiet your mind you get all of these invasive intrusive thoughts and i was up there and these negative thoughts and negative emotions started coming up i actually cried in the tree for a little while um it is sort of like being in a a sensory deprivation tank to an extent other than you have nice scenery to look around at, but that scenery doesn't change. It gets pretty old pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And I just noticed a lot of negative thoughts coming up, a lot of regret, I guess, second guessing myself. And, you know, it, it just made me realize that a lot of people look at therapy or AA, which I've been in both um, a number of times. Mm -hmm. And when therapy ends or, or when somebody leaves AA or, um, which generally doesn't turn out the best, but you know, especially with therapy, I tend to feel that the paradigm is that, okay, now I'm done. I put in the work now I'm done and it's time to move on. And just being up there and, and having those things come up made me realize you're never really done. It's always, it's a process. It's a lifelong process. And all you can really do, 
I think the best you can do, or what I've I've come for me at least, what I've come to realize is the best that I can do is is to stay on top of it. Okay. You can be proactive or reactive to these to your emotional well-being. So being reactive would be waiting for everything to pile up and cause a real issue and then going back to to therapy or you know right. um or something like that waiting for it to be a crisis whereas being proactive i think it you can't take for granted that just because everything's going well that you can give up on on taking the time to tend to your emotional well-being on a on a weekly or maybe even daily basis right right and that's i think that that's an important point to make is that when you're in these program, if you're in a program, actually like AA, there's the group, there is this, there's even a belief system that you're adhering to. Um, and all of those things, I think in that case, a lot of times people stay way, way after they're done drinking. I mean, like 20 years, they keep getting the coins. I mean, they, and I understand that that's something that, again, if you don't feel strong enough to have interjected that really, because it's, again, it's more of a, even a belief and understanding um, that you in a group and there's a camaraderie so that that in of itself is like you know why would you stop going to church you know like that that's that's a place that you can just continue to go well but maybe because you identify you're still identifying with that and you want to free yourself from that identification mm -hmm. then you don't you're no longer drinking so you don't necessarily want to stay thinking about it but that could you know that can you know hit you both ways if you really haven't done the work, like you said, to come up with a plan for how to be proactive instead of reactive to what's coming. Because mm -hmm. that's the thing with therapy too. I know some therapists and I, again, I'm so open to whatever works for people, but my idea in therapy is always to teach people how to think for themselves, not to just be the thinking authority in their minds. Because I know that when we start our work, something about what I'll call the superego super right? The inner authority is out of whack. You know, you're not able to tell yourself what to do and how to think and create structure. That's, that's either being overly critical or judgmental or completely, you know, not even, not even there. So I know that I step into a role in the mind and I play that part out, but at the same time, it, to, and to really help rebalance that and calibrate, so you can start to have all of these insightful processes, which I think you did, right? But that's that's the thing is like at some point you, you really are done, and either you can use therapy kind of dependently, like remember that like these talk, talked about a little bit too. I, I'm kind of wanting to go a little bit into those codependent relationships that you talked about. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the therapist can be somebody that you become codependent on for approval, for validation, for being that superego that you're not yet interjecting. And like you said, you know, giving yourself structure when you've seen, I think that you're telling me, like the, the check-in is, hey, where I'm really distracting myself here instead of staying with the process that got me out back, you know, I mean, that's the thing is like, I'm not sure how deeply you feel that you've, you've moved off the path that you were on as far as being really in process and really thinking about yourself and where you're going, what you're doing. And now to like more like a totally distracted state, like you're, what do you think? So that's kind of my, my lead off there. Well, I think luckily 
having that experience being isolated without any distractions made me realize that I had gotten off that path and hadn't been checking in enough. So for me, I, I think it caught, I caught it in time because of that. And it was, it was a rewarding experience because of that, but there is, it made me realize that I was being complacent, that I had started to look externally again for means of making myself feel better and feel satisfied with my life and for external solutions to internal problems. And that's a, for sure a theme with me. I, I think that's probably a theme with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I was distracting myself with a lot of positive things, self-development, reading, playing music, sometimes my phone. Um, there are all of these things vying for your attention on a, on a daily basis. And you're fighting a battle with your phone and technology, this thing in your pocket that's constantly going, look at me, pay attention to me. Here's something important. Here's something you should know. Look at who just posted something. And the pocket narcissist. Yeah. Yeah. It's so easy to fall into that. And it's just constantly there kind of poking you. And, and even if it isn't that it's, I realized I was distracting myself with positive things like playing music and reading and that those things could serve as a distraction just as much as, as anything else as an unhealthy relationship or, or a drug. And granted, it's on a more positive vector. But at the end of the day, when those things don't work out, when those things fall through, which if you're relying on them to, to feel good about yourself, or once those things fall through, for me, at least, the other side of that is is negative distractions and drugs, alcohol, women, uh, not that there's anything wrong with being in relationships. or But for me, I I use it in a unhealthy way um, or have in the past. So I just realized it made me realize that I need to I need to get back on track because I I need to I need to start investing some time into this because clearly I'm I'm letting it slip a little bit. Right. And so I, I think that I, but I, I think that's really important. And I want to be a little I get a little clearer on how distractions are distractions, regardless of you know, what it is, what, what, what type of distraction it is, because it's, it's kind of like health food. You know, if you eat the health food bar with 360 calories or the hamburger, they both have the same amount of calories. You know, I mean, what do you, what do you, are you trying to feel healthy to eat the healthy bar or are you, what are you doing? You know, in some ways too, it's, it's like the distractions seem to have like qualities. It's, it's okay to do this consume this media or this is fine to consume this thing, but it's still qualifying to you as something that's distracting you from something else that's more, that would have been more positive. <laughs> sure. I think for me, it mostly appears or arises as a feeling or an emotion. And mm -hmm. a lot of the time that presents as anxiety for me or how it initially okay. appends, uh, presents anxiety or fear. And that anxiety will hit and it's just sort of arising out of the ether. There's no cause that I can necessarily give to it because my initial reaction is to reach for the phone and get on Tinder or Bumble to validate myself. 
you know, mm -hmm. and then that's a, a distraction. Um, and then so, that's, a, sorry, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so I think we just to kind of like show the process though now, because I think this is a very good demonstration of, you know, well, what are you distracting yourself from? And then this is kind of the introspective process that we go through, which is a feeling and you're able to, you know, describe in any terms whatsoever. There's no right or wrong language for what it, what it is that you're experiencing. And, yeah. and then, then wondering, you know, I mean, I, I always think it's so interesting how people's minds jump from the feeling to the thing mm -hmm. and leave the, 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 um, this middle ground, you know, that's usually where I have to jump in and say, okay, we'll go back. What is yeah. that? What is that? That specific distraction shows you something about the anxiety, which seemed to come from. Yeah. Everywhere. Well, validating myself with women is uh, something that I've done a lot in my life. Validating myself, not with women, but with relationships on any level, I guess. And I use the Tinder example because that has been a, a theme, but it could be anything, you know, that anxiety comes up and maybe I say to myself, I need to do something productive. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll play the bass or go to the gym or work, something like that. But at the end of the, but what it comes down to is I'm not getting to the root of what, of that anxiety. Like you mentioned, I'm not, these things are, are distractions, even if they're positive, even if it's positive self-development, it's not allowing me to get to what's underneath that emotion, mm -hmm. which you have to sit with. I think you have to sit with that feeling and think about it to sort of figure out where those things are, are coming from. Yeah. You, I mean, you definitely do. You have to face them. You have to sit with them and you have to, you know, I think that this is the thing where you can do that by writing. You can do that in a lot of different ways, but just in this, in this moment, I think because so many men do struggle with codependency because they depended on their mother to validate their existence in some ways emotionally, like that I'm a good person, that I'm a good boy, that I'm um, I'm somebody to be proud of and well behaved and you know we're, we're good to her and it acted right in the right way for her not to get all anxious and upset, you know. <laughs> there's there's so much about how a boy identifies with like being good himself. And so I am wondering too, if that resonates in some ways, as far as, you know, what, what, do, what are you saying by validating, you know, through the, what, what are women usually validating for you? Well, for my relationship with my mother, she had a lot of trauma in her life mm -hmm. and has a lot of anxiety, had a lot of anxiety through my childhood. It was very difficult for me to navigate that relationship in terms of looking for validation from her and then her not really being able to provide it in a, in a healthy way. Because what I now know is that she was dealing with her own emotional issues from her childhood, mm -hmm. but it left me with this feeling of always having to try really hard to, to work for someone's love or affection, that it was never enough to just be or exist that I didn't grow up with the sense that I deserve to be loved or cared for just simply by being a person or being her son more that I, you know, I had to do something, act in a certain way 
And I carried that on into my adult relationships with women mm -hmm. in a similar way in that I remember when I first, when I had my first girlfriend, when I had sex for the first time, when I, when I lost my virginity, that I remember laying with her afterwards. And I think that that was, as far as I can remember, the first time that I really felt loved or cared for or complete on some level with a, with a woman. And it became very addictive for me. It became something that I, it was just such a good feeling that I needed more of it. And if I didn't have it, then I didn't, I didn't feel, I didn't feel good about myself. So I entered a, a very long period of my life, probably several decades before I really got the, the help or the insight into this, um, which was in large part, thanks to you and our sessions together. But I went through this period of essentially needing to be with someone needing to have some sort of relationship there to run to when I was feeling bad about myself or mm -hmm. when I was getting those negative emotions and that, that anxiety. Yeah. And that's, I think that's, I mean, that's really important to note that one is a coping mechanism. One is a defense against, like you said, the feeling bad about, otherwise I'm feeling bad about myself because the context, and oh, I'm gonna go back one more time, is that your insight into your mother's trauma and how it affected you is empathy. However, one of the things that you recognize and are not a victim of any longer, because you're willing to take insightful responsibility for it, is that regardless of whatever that was for her, now it's ours to work with, mm -hmm. right? And to, and to grow from and, and, and out of. And I think that I just, I, I mean, I'm pretty touched by this idea of having, you know, having to work so hard for somebody's love and affection and not being okay being yourself. Um, that that was something that was just experienced out of you. I mean, I'm not going to say beaten necessarily because there wasn't that, but there's like, but there is a, you know, there's a trauma associated with that. And this is some, this is how you made sense of that situation. Mm -hmm. And so when you go into the world, I mean, to feel finally connection and loved in a merged state, right? It's, it's like the only safe place left. And we need that so badly. Like, I don't think that that should be discounted. People get in these relationships where it's really platonic and cognitive and, and argumentative and, you know, just resentful. And I'm like, you know, they're, they're, you're not only not, you're both unhappy, but you're not recognizing that there has to be, there should be at least that space in the relationship for connection at that deep, intimate level, because sometimes that is the safest place for a man. And then the second, but the, from there going up, there needs to be other places to connect where it's not um, dependent on the other person saying, oh, you've worked hard enough today. That's great. You're not, you're actually not looking for a partner to be the person who says that, you know, you're, you're looking for somebody to say, wait a second, what's that about? You know, what I, I'm, you're good the way you are. Yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. And maybe it would be good for me to, speak a little bit about how that developed for me. I think through working in therapy, 
I came to the realization that there was a, a dynamic at play with my my family and my relationship between my mom and myself that was pretty instrumental to the person I would become and some of the issues I had to deal with. And I, it goes back to attachment theory. Um, and as a kid, you're constantly gauging your environment. You know, that's what kids, they're always testing. They're always testing the environment and they're trying to gauge, is this going to get me a positive reaction or a negative reaction? Not consciously, obviously. This is all very instinctual and subconscious, but you're looking for validation from your protectors. These are the people who are providing you with life and death. And they're the most important people in your life up to probably early adolescence. And with if you're not getting that validation, it could be very damaging or if it's not consistent. So with with my mom, it was never uh, consistent. So I came to the realization that uh, I use this example of a, a report card because grades were always very important to my mother um, and my father, but more so my mother. She never got an education past high school, grew up in the projects in Boston and never got an education past high school. So it was very important that I got an education. And there was a lot of pressure related to that going back even to to grade school, which in context now as, as an adult, I look back and it's it's like, who remembers what grades they got in grade school? You know, it's know. such a, yeah. And yeah. so the example I use is that because that was so important to my mother, I was <laughs> perpetually getting punished for not doing well enough. And I can't remember if this specifically happened, but it's a good way for me to conceptualize the nature of our relationship. So... I do remember that there was a lot of strife around grades, but an example I would use is that say I got a C on my report card in some class, she would be very disappointed, very upset about that. I might get grounded or punished. It would be uh, a really emotional reaction, an out of proportion reaction to the situation and not a caring reaction, but a reaction that antagonistic, I guess. Um, very, and as a kid, it's very difficult to feel like in retrospect, I realized that it made me feel like I wasn't good enough. Um, so then let's say for the next semester, I work hard on that class. I try to improve and instead of a C, I get a C plus or a B minus. Now I take that report card to my mom expecting positive reinforcement for improving. But because her reactions to me weren't based in the reality of the situation or what was actually going on, they were based in large part in how she was feeling at the time, which related back to her trauma, her reaction to the improved grade might be more punishment. It might be a, it might be a, a worse punishment than before. It might be indifference, total indifference, like, oh, that's nice, you, you did a little bit better. Or it might be very rarely, I would say, was it positive? Mm -hmm. Or if it was positive, it wasn't, you know, it was sort of uh, not authentic or pa patronizing, I guess, to an extent, mm -hmm. almost like that's what you should be doing anyway. So as a kid, and that happened, that's just one example. It's a, it's a way I used to conceptualize it, but that happened in our relationship on many different levels in many different 
interactions. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, it's very difficult. It, it became impossible, I think, to an extent for me to gauge what I could do to get positive validation from my parents. And that that is a, and do you, I mean, maybe because you've done such a good job of explaining it, in some ways, just to kind of put it back into context is that because the work Frank has done, he's able to say kind of the interpretation, you know, I know that I had to work really hard to earn her love. These are the examples of, you know, a childhood ways that that starts to become, you know, the, the bottom line is through this constant frustration of the child again and again, looking to work harder you know, and again, it, expecting that the improvement will be seen as finally redemption or repair to the relationship. And the child is trying, that, you mm -hmm. know, that you're trying. And, and I think that this is, again, you know, wh where's the parent? You know, it's always us trying to figure out how do we maneuver to get our needs met, our emotional needs met, instead of saying, you know what, I, I really need your validation right now. And we're not able to say that. So we come up with all these ways that we try to get it. So being though overly frustrated, not ever able to depend, like with my mom, actually, I'll just say a little self-disclosure. I know if I cleaned the house before she got home, I could get it. I knew I could get love. But if it wasn't, I knew I could get the opposite, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, that was something consistent. Unfortunately, it's now something that I have to make sure that I'm on top of as far as being uh, too clean or expecting that of other people to show me love, right? Um, if you don't clean the house, you don't love me. That doesn't, no, that's not correct, Bianca. So, right, so that's what you were taught, not what you do, but it does leave something for us to work through. And I think in this context, what do you think that it, this left you with? Like this, this, this really difficult place that she's like, that she's like letting you off at. There's no way of no way of satisfying me. Yeah. Well, at first I, I, it is wild how those things come back and keep coming up and they're, and like the example you use with cleaning on a logical level, it makes no sense that, you know, different people have different standards for cleanliness and, you know, it doesn't, it's not a reflection on you um, or your relationship if somebody cleans or doesn't clean to an extent, you know, obviously if somebody's anyway, so, but on an emotional level, it still feels like that. It still feels just as real as if. So for me, it left me with a lot of anger. I think at some point I realized that, I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. I just wasn't going to get this validation from my parents. Their philosophy seemed to be that I was just born uh, difficult and that that was a me problem as a child, you know, and that their, their only strategy for that seemed to be to punish me and not to look uh, deeper into, right. you know, and then the punishment is like, that's negative reinforcement. So that's just adding to whatever behavior I'm exhibiting, seeking this validation or this attention, so. Yeah, and I wanna like pause on that because that's something that comes up often that I find that um, the punishment that you receive, because you, you kind of keep saying that sometimes I notice that men tend to get themselves into relationships where it's very clear that their partner is, they're in a punisher, uh, 
victim type of situation where it's like maybe they feel jilted by their partner, their, their male partner, but now because of this victim state that they're in, they become the punisher, the abuser, they become something. And the guy seems to allow it. Mm. And, and like to be like, again, ignored, criticized, yelled at, emotional needs not met, sexual needs not met. Um, but that's all being kind of done to them. It's it's not like, a you know, there was not some sort of agreement, you know, where they were both okay with these things. But what do you think, do you find yourself that that was part of any of the relationships that you were in or that you've been okay with that because of that's the, the dynamic? You oh, definitely. Raising? Definitely. A hundred percent. Yeah. My first, my initial assumption, if a relationship isn't going well, is that I'm doing something wrong, that it's my fault and that I need to fix it. And I don't know if that has to do with, I don't know, the way we view men as a society, as, yeah. as being the ones who have to be like, it's our responsibility for maintaining the relationships. And as a gentleman, or I'm not sure exactly where that where that lies, but I feel like in a lot of my relationships, I've constantly been the one who's rather than meeting someone halfway, I put it on myself to to go the whole distance to cross the whole bridge and meet the person on the other side. And that definitely goes back to, I think my relationship with my mom, my relationship with my my parents, because it was always assumed, I guess, in, in my household that if there was an issue that I was to blame for it, I guess there was there was no real hearing out of where I was or or uh, more introspection or trying to look deeper into what I got in trouble a lot as a kid, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and at some point, I think around early adolescence, that desire for validation switched. Mm -hmm. And I don't know this scientifically, but looking back at my life, it seems like it happened at early, early adolescence around the time when my primary social exposure went from being my parents to my friends and my my social circle. And at that point, I kind of accepted that, not consciously, again, I don't think, but through my behavior, through my actions, through my feelings, that not only am I never going to get validation from these people, I don't even, I don't even I don't know if I can swear. Should I? Can I swear or no? You can swear. Keep yeah. it PG. All right. It went from like I don't, I don't, I'm not gonna get validation from these people, and I don't even fucking want it at this right. point. I'll get it somewhere else, and fuck them and everything they've ever told me. And that was really my attitude, and it played out in my actions. Mm -hmm. You know, I just had, I mean, any way I could express that anger um essentially came up for me and it a lot of self-destructive behavior destructive relationships petty crime drug use all that stuff at a very young age kind of entered my life i would say uh around 15 or 16 and it my relationship with my parents kind of primed me for that for being very suggestible to the to the people around me to be willing to do anything to get validation from the people around me. Right. So, and a very high risk time. And, and so kind of to take it, take it full circle. Cause you got, you got to a really good point. I think as far as when the lid flips or when things switch, but you know, this idea of punishment 
is goes hand in hand then when people like why do i let myself um be punished is that because you're you've you've convinced yourself you have a you know an implicit an unconscious uh you know mantra going on in your head that's reinforced by society and then you know your familial relationships that it's all my fault and i have to fix it mm-hmm. and you know the reason the, the reason why we cling to that or a man would cling to that is because it gives them any amount of control in an out of control situation if it's all your fault and it's your job to fix it you know then whatever you're doing I'm going to be in control of even if it's punishing me. Somehow I'm going to maintain something and that's going to take power away from you to totally destroying me. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's, so there is a coping mechanism in, in all of these ways that we learn how to defend ourselves against this, these attacks. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's so important to wake up to your emotional value, your, you know, your emotional worth, right. And knowing that, wait a second, I'm the way that this is going is not reciprocal. You know, I want something from you and it's okay for me to expect it and to communicate it and to receive respect and love and understanding from you. If, and if we're not in that situation, then I'm not in a place where any longer your feelings are my fault. So that's, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the waking up to this and moving out of that space because there is no fixing it with that dynamic unless both people are willing to recognize their, their role, both people, right? And yeah. so both have to speak up. And a lot of men talk a lot about like, you know, hey, I can't, she's going to get mad at me. She's going to yell at me. I'm like, well, she's getting mad and yelling no matter what, you, you know, there's, there's somebody's got to get the ball rolling, right? And then we have to see really where people's hearts and minds are and where they're willing to grow or, or go. Yeah. Uh, that's with relationships. But, you know, as far as a peak experience, I think this is, this is really interesting, a conversation, because I don't think like people recognize it's it's so profound, but so simple. And that's what this work is all about. It's not without consequence to persecute them, to make them, you know, somebody that has to live up to your expectations, your trauma, you, you haven't worked on yourself. You know, again, the, this, this, this is an attack on someone, even though we're not out in the woods, you know, surviving any longer. Emotional t- attack or that never being able to find a safe space in in a parent or seeing them as violent people anyway. All of these things, again, equal something in the child that that they're trying to make sense of. And the child is resilient, what I call like through a time. They're not, they're concrete, but they're not subjective. They don't understand quite what's being done to them in some ways at a deeper level. But at some point, and I think, again, it's during this to these teenage years, everything starts to compound, make sense. It's like our brain <laughs> turns on and we're recognizing everything from the past. It's a high risk time. It's a peer oriented time. And wow, you know, I mean, again, it w- it's so amazing to hear how clearly this fits together and say parent giving their child love would have been enough to help them not you mean for them not to have to go through this yeah a parent denying them love compassion and care and and neglect does if there's a trajectory of Mm -hmm. of anger 
And it's like everything in society is just ready to meet us at those impulses, right? I'm like, oh, really? You want that now? You want that now? You want that now? You know, and, it, and it, it seems like it it just turns into this like perfect storm because everything, like you said, I'm so suggestible to all these things because I'm looking for this feeling I haven't gotten for 16 mm-hmm. years. And now it, it seems to be everywhere and, yeah. and destructively so because it's helping me, helping me to feel like I'm hurting them by hurting myself. Mm-hmm. That's a deeper level thing. Yep. And c- as a kid, I didn't consciously... It took me a long time to really come full circle on my childhood because there was an aspect of my parents, too, that was very authoritarian. There was a lot of fear in the relationship. I was looking back, there were times where I was, you know, terrified of them. And they never would admit that they were wrong. Rather than admitting they were wrong, they would lie about the situation even if it was clearly wrong or not my fault or whatever the case may be, and I was having a logical conversation with them, they would lie or change uh, some slight detail of the situation to kind of invalidate the way I was feeling. Or And that too, I think, affected my later relationships to a, to a large extent because I would, I would always second guess myself right. and assume that yeah, I guess uh, taking on the mantle of of being the the sole caretaker of of this relationship, being the one that has to you know go out and and get love or sort of show and prove to make things work, mm-hmm. and then it's accepting not- it when people weren't accepting it at face value when people lied or manipulated in order to to not meet me halfway, and then just staying in the relationship anyway. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That That's a, I don't definitely don't call it, you know, with this kind of insight, necessarily rose colored glasses, but I do think it's a blinders on. Yeah. And it's a perception that, again, it's so important to be able to see emotional distortion. But the fact that they couldn't, I mean, again, it's so important in all of our relationships, even if, you know, to recognize there will be ruptures. Mm-hmm. Recognize there will be times that we act out of, you know, our normal character or we don't tell the truth or we do something that's less than empathetic. Absolutely. But it's okay. We're human and we have to be able, it's not about being right or wrong for parents, for spouses, even towards our children. Like, I mean, our, our kids, it's okay for them to say, wow, that hurt. Mm-hmm. I don't come to you because you yelled at me. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for telling me that I didn't realize me yelling that time really you know, broke our relationship up, you know, well, let's, I'll work, I'll work on that. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to destroy your character, you know, that idea of yourself. People are so fragile mm-hmm. when it comes to emotional feedback and it's okay yeah. for us to have our feelings and then let our person know that, well, that's kind of annoying, even in the moment without going, Oh my God, I'm so bad. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible person. I've ignored, I've annoyed her. You know, it's, you know, having enough, you know, space, to hold that knowing that that person, I think too, is is going to hear you and not attack you for that, yeah. right? So, and that, that's okay. You could do the same with them. Yeah. It goes both ways. And, and I, I do wish men would recognize they have a lot of defenses, like you're talking about self-doubt, taking all the responsibility on, it's all my fault, I have to fix it, that really block them 
from mm -hmm. being able to talk directly to the source or to the person or to the issue that stops them. And, and the lack of verbalization then turns inward and now it's an internalization. So now you're dealing with not only <laughs> the fact that that person has no clue, or maybe they do, but um, of what you're feeling, but now you're dealing with all your feelings and all the feelings you just projected into you. It's just too much. Yeah. Right. But you have to practice the verbalization part. Yeah. hundred percent. And mm -hmm. with my parents, I think, well, with kids, mm -hmm. my parents had this attitude that there was just something, it was my personality that that's just how I was, that I was a troublemaker, that I would, you know, get into trouble and just wouldn't listen. And, you know, I was sort of a bad kid. I mean, that's kind of the self-conception I grew up with. And now looking back, I don't think it, it's, it's shocking that people can hold those sort of beliefs because I have a daughter now, and I see this very clearly that a, a child is like water. They're going to fill up whatever space you pour them into, whatever the environment is around them, they grow into that. And genetics obviously play a role, but I think it's a much less, it's much less of a role than people, people have decided, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think the science is still sort of uh, scientifically, we're still trying to figure this out in terms of genetics and epigenetics and how much of a role does the environment nature versus nurture. I have a tendency to think that as we're very adaptable as a species, we're incredibly adaptable, we wouldn't be the, you know, peak, we wouldn't be at the top of the food chain, we wouldn't have survived as long as we had if we weren't adaptable. And I think that that applies now, even though we're not out in the wild in domestic situations where a kid is going to adapt to their environment, and whether that's functional or dysfunctional, I certainly feel like that's what happened with me. And I remember at a very young age, having a lot of, I don't know, negative, negative ways. So at some point I just decided, I think we discussed this in one of our sessions. I had this mantra mm -hmm. at maybe 12, 11 or 12 years old. And it was, nobody loves me and I don't love anyone and I don't need anyone. So I put up a wall at a very young age to just not be dependent on people, which is by the way, totally unrealistic because we just are dependent on people. We're social animals. There is no, I mean, very few people, unless you want to go be a hermit and live out in the woods, but that's like a tiny percent, you know, and there's probably some trauma, you know, very there's, rare. There's still people taking care of them, you know, to a certain yeah. so yeah. Yeah, you need, we need other people. We need human interaction. But I had put up that wall at a very young age and not consciously, again, it took me 20 years after the fact to, to start to process this stuff. Right. Um, well, that's, and that's the, the, I really, that's a great uh, metaphor for children. I talk about them being sponges all the time, meaning like they absorb everything, another water kind of analogy, but yeah. it's, um, I, I do think that, you know, people look at their kiddos and they're like, oh, I'm so frustrated with that. I'm like, well, you, you literally have poured that part of you into the child. He's got to be the, he's got to stay the baby, you know, oh, you're so frustrated that he's, he's still the baby. Well, you know, that's, that's from a lot of your nurturing um, mm -hmm. or your, you know, needing him to be something for you. So I, I really, and children are containers a lot of times and they form around that. So 
you know, and this is whether, I mean, I think it does take time for our brain to grow in a more sophisticated and complex way for us to start working these things out. But yeah, in your 20s, you can definitely do that. And so, and I think to kind of get, you know, to that point too, like what are some of the, you know, coming full circle, what are some of the things that you found helpful once you started to recognize these things about yourself? What, like, and moved from, you know, the dependencies to some structure? Mm. Writing, Mm -hmm. writing is, I think of it almost like a superpower. There are so many times where, and I I write and read quite a bit because in a lot of ways, my childhood was also very lonely because I didn't have, you know, that sort of connection with my parents. So I spent a lot of time in books. So writing and reading was something I always did. But for other people who don't or aren't familiar with it, it doesn't mean you can't do it or you shouldn't do it. You don't have to be a good writer per se or have an English degree to reap these tremendous rewards from just sitting in a place, being silent and putting a pen to a paper and seeing what comes out. You don't have to have an idea in your head of what you're going to write, but I'm constantly amazed by the sort of things that come out, things that I didn't realize that I had internalized something so negatively or didn't realize that I was feeling that way. I didn't realize that my reaction, my disproportionate reaction to, to X stimulus was related to Y experience, right? you know, 20 years earlier. So it's really, uh, that's been a huge help to me. Therapy, I think, you know, one of the positive things that came out of my childhood was uh, I got, I started when I was, I think around 12 or 13, I was really depressed, Mm -hmm. you know, suicidal. And I had met, I brought this up to uh, my pa- in a rare moment of vulnerability, I can remember like on uh, just a couple times where I really authentically asked my parents for help and made myself sort of emotionally vulnerable. And one of them when I was was when I was depressed and, and you know, was sort of obsessively thinking about uh, suicide that was around like 13 or 14. And so they put me in therapy. And I think the therapy didn't really help. And it, like everything, like much of what went on in my childhood, their reaction to it was very surface level. And yeah, yeah. so. But you were exposed to it. But I was exposed to it. I had already broken, I had already broken the seal. I was already, you know, damaged goods or however people that don't go to therapy think about people that do go to therapy and, uh, you know. Right. But I, that's, I think that that's what, in some ways, recognizing, you know, people around you that might even, you know, feel that way or think that way. It's like a lot of times, you know, men talk about men that, you know, definitely have not taken this route, but have gone that route. It's like, once the pain gets bad enough, you're going to reach out. And why do men have to wait? Now you, you did wait, you know, until Mm -hmm. it was at the end too, even as a young boy. So, I mean, like that's something as well. You don't have to. Yeah. You can be in a place in your life where it's like, wow, this is really getting complicated. I'm feeling overwhelmed and I don't know how to process this. And it's a, it's, it can be an intellectual experience. It can be an emotional experience. It can be a validating experience. It can be all these things, but it's definitely not for the weak of heart. 
Because mm-hmm. I, I think that in some ways too, people think, you know, oh, okay, well then you must be crazy. Or, you know, again, if there's you're weak-minded, you can't figure it out. No, actually it's the opposite. You, you really have to be strong, yeah. you know, both. And, and I don't, that's why I call this emotional warriors. In some ways it's like, it's, it's people that have gone through a lot in their lives are emotionally stronger than they think. And they have the, they just need a scaffolding to think about it. Mm-hmm. but they are very strong people. So I think that therapy is, is a, a lot of work. It's a lot, it's more emotional labor. Can't come into it thinking you're going to get advice, like yeah. somebody just to figure it out for you. But there is something that you do get, which is again, finally that, that's so that organizing support on the, the higher end, which again, you've always taken on as responsibility of your own, you can't break out of this, even as a kid. I mean, the feeling completely up against the wall, like I can't figure my way out of this problem. I can't think my way out, mm-hmm. feel my way out. So I need help to do that. I think people reach that point maybe several times in their lives, you know, <laughs> and especially if they've entered into a relationship um, or have a lot of, you know, entangled interests that sometimes another pain, like finally the pain threshold, it's too high. And then they reach out. Well, my kind of last thing to say on that is that, well, then you need to recognize there's going to be a tempering a process of bringing that down because yep. you can't, you know, therapy isn't done in crisis mode. Mm-hmm. It's done in thought, thought mode. Yeah. Uh, right. It's, it's, it's a, it's a very, again, it's a contemplation. We have to be thinking and people that come in at high levels of, of distress also want to take some time, know that, you know, at first might just be a place that you're heard and you can feel listened to, but after a while, the work's going to have to start. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And part of, I think the important thing for me about that realization about being alone up in that tree mm-hmm. is it was like a, so there were three times I think that I can remember really clearly where I just hit a wall and the pain was too much and I had to do something about it. One was the first time was, you know, when I was 12 or 13 with my parents. The second time was um, in my 20s, drug addiction. Uh, the pain, you know, got me into the, the rooms at AA and NA and sober. And then the pain of my mm, unhealthy relationship with my ex-wife, which kind of brought me, well, resulted in a divorce, but also brought me into, you know, further therapy with with you and, um, mm-hmm. and uh, another therapist I worked with previously. But there's a theme with all of those, which is that life, at some point, I just stopped doing the work on a daily or even weekly basis. Mm-hmm. I stopped dealing with those things in real time, because everything's, one of the funny things about the military is that and maybe if there's anyone listening that was uh, in the military, they'll be able to relate to this. But as an officer in the military, there's so many requirements that they give you to get done every day. And everything's the most important thing. And at some point, you just realize or you have to realize, maybe the good leaders, yeah, the good leaders realize, no, not everything is the most important thing. Like this weekend pass, uh, you know, the fact that we have to do weekend passes or whatever, they, they have a lot of little nonsense requirements. Um, and 
you just can't exist. You would go crazy if you actually treated everything like it was equally important as the most important thing. So you've you got to just let other things slip. And I guess uh, with with all those three times where it snowballed, I got to a good place in therapy or with my friends or or uh, just being materially successful and everything around me was going okay. So I thought I can ease back now. I don't have to do the work. I can kind of take my foot off the, I can coast a little bit and you can't, or at least I can't, maybe other people can. Um, mm -hmm. If you're out there coasting more power to you, I can't because all that stuff will build up. And over the course of maybe years, it's just a matter of time before something negative happens or you run into adversity and then you're going to wind up if you don't have a mechanism for dealing with with the negative emotions or the negativity your default or my default is to deal with it is to not deal with it is mm -hmm. to, to instead distract myself by trying to provide growth in some other area, whether it's through job progression or school or learning a new language or an instrument or, <laughs> you know, all these things that and maybe they are positive, but there's a way to do something positive that hurts you still. Mm -hmm. If you're avoiding something else that, you know, would be more positive for you to, to deal with. So, I wound up in these situations where it had snowballed and I hit a wall emotionally and I just was done. And then being up in that tree a week or two ago, I was like, I was like, oh shit, I'm hitting a wall. I'm sort of hitting a little mini wall in this tree right now because I don't have anything to distract myself with. So even though things are hypothetically or on the surface going right or going fairly well in my life, there's all this stuff that's still creeping around back there and creeping up and and by putting it off for even a short amount of time, yeah, yeah. there's a there's a cost to it. There's, there's a, a cost to it. There is. And there's like an atrophy to this this process, of course, you know, doing this for a living, obviously, <laughs> I don't get probably as much of a break as I would like. But you know, that that idea of being in this mode, you know, emotional development, I would like to even just to put it in more of a perspective of, you know, it's it's a developmental process that generally speaking, I mean, some of these things are pretty complex. I think it takes an adult mind to become more emotionally mature. When, so when an adult comes to my practice and, and I'd say, you know, that's, there is a lot of emotional immaturity because there, there isn't the attention paid to what this, what these signals are, what they, where they came from, what they mean. There's not enough understanding you know, of this for them to be able to, pro so the development is low, but that doesn't mean that we're a kid. You know, we start at a certain level of understanding ourselves. We have a, quite a bit of intellectual capability. It's a process, It's but it's it needs to be kept, like not, like everything's important. Like you said, the priorities, like life has got to be at 100% on every level. Mm -hmm. Even if you kept, you know, the emotional processing too high. You know, you would like that. That's something I got to bring down sometimes. So it's it is recognizing when that's important, when it's not and staying very much in tune with like it's a journey. And that's not a, like a joke. That's a great way of putting it where you're writing. It's a practice, mm -hmm. you know, and it's I do think that we become 
yeah, I mean, again, the kind of the mental muscles that we use in an introspective process, whatever it is, they start to weaken. And then something wants to think for us, like the self-development tape or, you know, whatever, whatever, video, I'm dating myself right there. <laughs> yeah. so the, the idea of, of, okay, well, I'm going to let you do it for me or I'll let this thing do it, you know, somehow I'm going to rest on that. Yeah. Okay. But, and that's very human, but there's a lot lurking because there are so much always I'm noticing whether it's in society or what we're reading, what we're seeing. I mean, we're, we actually need to process. Yeah. I know some trauma yep. therapists that are like, do not watch the news. You know, <laughs> like meaning like we, we could just like walk around and we're, we're, there's things that we're, that we're constantly being inundated with. So I think this is part of, you know, our mental hygiene, mm-hmm. what you're talking about, because otherwise there is this consequence you know, yeah. at some point. And people really don't know how to deal with it once they get there. I mean, yeah. so, you know, and so any, I, I'm wondering now we're going to wrap up, but any final thoughts about what you would encourage people to consider in this journey? I would say take time to be by yourself and sit with your own thoughts and not have any of those distractions around and see what happens. You may find that, you know, there's a lot of stuff built up there. Even if on the surface, everything's going well, you might find that there's a lot there that starts coming up. Uh, That's what happened with me. And then that realization, yeah, it's a practice. Mental health isn't just something you have or you don't. It's Mm. something that you have to maintain. And for some people, that means more work than others. But I think it's worth it at the end of the day to put that little bit of time in to 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 prioritize yourself, to prioritize your mental health, even if you feel great. Maybe those are the times that you should be thinking about it the most because it's so easy to lose sight of it when things are going well. I realized because of that experience recently that I need to recommit myself to making, uh, to looking deeper within because there's there's always going to be more. Until we die and stop experiencing anything in general, then there's always going to be something there that that needs to be thought about or worked on or or developed or looked into. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's great. That's great advice. And I think uh, we had on so many good, so many points here. I, I really hope that this one goes far and wide. And a lot of people um, can share this with um, even younger men. I mean, older men, fathers, um, anyone and any woman that wants to understand where a man is coming from. So I so, so appreciate you being so open and coming on with me today. Yeah. Anytime. It was great. It's always great talking to you. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm so excited to see how, you know, your TikTok following has grown and how many people you're able to reach there. And I love your videos and I'm, I'm excited. I'd love to come on anytime you want to have me on. I feel like there's a lot of stuff that we could talk about culturally too. We didn't even get to get into the cultural aspect of, you know, all of this, I don't know, craziness that's going on in the world today. And I see so much of my own, you know, dysfunctional thinking in just the standard of what's accepted for behavior from, you know, young adults these days, like the, this unearned moral authority and, 
uh, clearly the need to the need to make yourself feel good by these little symbolic actions of like, oh, I'm a good person. I'll share this thing on Twitter about racism and that and now then I get to give myself a little pat on the back and feel good about it. well, what are you what's underneath that? You know, there's something underneath there uh, that doesn't make you a good person, by the way. <laughs> And also, yeah, but 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 again, yeah, definitely, we should. I mean, I think that that's the that's the part that is cool about having a relationship in the context of like we're thinking, growing, and learning together. And I think that's exactly what women and men need to do. We also need to be able to have you know conversations and see each other as as people that can get on the same page. Mm -hmm. I, I. yeah, so yeah, we will do that. Absolutely. We will we'll definitely do that. All right, All it right. was great talking to you. Okay, you too.